The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're having a fantastic summer. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to take a second to let you know that Halliburton Labs is currently accepting applications to their next cohort. All you have to do is go to halliburtonlabs.com forward slash opportunity, drop your application. The deadline is September 3rd. Don't wait, get it done. If you're an early stage startup and you're ready to scale your business, this is where you want to be. So again, the deadline is September 3rd. Don't wait, go get it done. All right. Now that that's out of the way, let's talk about today's guest, who is James Phelan. James is the commercial officer and co-founder of Village Insights here in Houston, and he would describe himself as an innovator, strategist, design thinker, communicator, and doer who likes to harness his prior military experience and professional experience as a mentor, advisor, consultant, and executive in startup growth and corporate organizations. James holds a degree from the University of Southern California, as well as the University of St. Thomas. So without further ado, here's my interview with James Phelan. James, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great. Thanks for having me on here today. Awesome. Just for a sense of geography, where are you located today? Today, I am in central Houston, Texas. Nice, nice. So you're enjoying some of this nice rain that we've been getting for the past, what feels like months (laughs) <laughs> finally yeah. on Friday today was finally lightened up a little bit. If you wouldn't mind, just give the audience just sort of like the idea of how you got to where you are today and where you started from. Sure. I started as an architect and an urban planning student. I learned to learn that way in college at the University of Southern California. As a native Houstonian that went out there, I brought with me Texas values. This was in the nineties and early nineties in California and things were a little different. It was, it was a great experience. Learned a lot, learned a lot about people, learned a lot about innovation, even as an architecture and urban planning student. I didn't maybe know that then, (laughs) but then after my collegiate experience or undergraduate collegiate experience, I joined the United States Navy, went into some aviation Intel work. That was really interesting. Sort of got me thinking about things even more differently. I'd already had sort of the detail to zoom up. And then I started looking at structure and understanding structure, but not necessarily in the militaristic way, but in understanding teams, understanding the dynamics of people, understanding young people, old people, you know, leaders, followers, all those sorts of things. And then came back to Houston after my service and did a number of different things from banking, and then went into entrepreneurship. In 2009, got the opportunity to form a first startup with a a wonderful friend and a trusted colleague. Her name is Dr. Audrey Trotty. And she had just finished a doctoral thesis about 
railway transit nodes in Europe while in Europe. And she came back to Houston also. And we were looking at this light rail thing and we were looking at these carpool lanes and, and she was applying part of her thesis very applicably. And it made a lot of sense to various stakeholders, government, developers, things of that nature. So we built a consulting firm and we got to talk to a lot of people. I think we got some fingerprints on some stuff. And now I, I think, you know, we're looking at long game. Now we're, we're seeing some of the fruits of all that labor, which was fascinating. And through that, I got through an exit, a successful exit acquisition and moved into co-working. In 2012, I thought co-working was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. It really hadn't taken off yet. Little bits around the world in the United States at that point, it really only existed a little bit in the New York area and Boston and, and Los Angeles and in San Francisco. And I really thought it would be fun to bring that to Houston. Let's with this ecosystem starting to bubble. There's, there's things happening. There's innovators that are in my peer group that are a little older, that are a little younger. who are thinking about interesting startup ideas. So I gave them a place to do it. And this is before we had WeWork. This is before Station Houston. This is before the Canon. There were just a few little places. They were really like garages that were slightly fancier. And people came and coded and did marketing and did all kinds of things and then managed to actually land a few of the national brands we've heard of like Instacart or, or Uber or any of those as they were making entrance into our marketplace. Uh, we gave them that soft landing pad, but sadly my loss was I didn't think about churn. <laughs> so they were all, all happy to have a place to land. And then they went and found their own place to be. And there I was stuck with very few clients. So failed that one relatively fast and didn't lose a lot of money, which is great, but did learn a lot. And from those learnings, then started to really get into community work. I was asked, and it was an honor to be asked to by, by the Startup Grind organization to join their team here in Houston and start working, you know, on the community, encouraging new ideas, connecting people to one another, connecting them to education opportunities, connecting them to the tools and the hard skills as well as soft skills to be a successful entrepreneur, which is really fun. I really enjoy it. It's, I still enjoy it to this day, seven years later, <laughs> just had the anniversary yesterday. Then it's become just advisory and other startup work, a number of different things. But currently I find myself as the commercial officer for two startups. One is called Village Insights. We're currently working on connecting innovators globally. So if you come with a solution, let's connect you to the problem. If you come with a problem, let's connect you to a solution. And primarily we're starting that in the energy transition space. And we are very fortunate to have Halliburton Labs as our first customer. And we've been working very closely and well together now for just over a year. So during COVID, we, we built this thing and we built a relationship and landed a paid beta with, you know, and we're growing together. We're sort of startup together and learning together. It's been crazy. And that's where I think, you know, we, this, this afternoon's focus goes, I could go on and on. You don't want me to go on and on. <laughs> now, you hit on something really interesting, energy transition, right? Would you sort of give your point of view as, you know, 
where it's going and where you think it'll end up and how do you think we'll get there, right? Because this is a really important topic. It is. It is. I think it's going to be a multifaceted approach by a lot of people from a lot of markets, a lot of expertise that's going to be, you know, borrowed from learnings of the past and then included, you know, quite possibly across industry and get some new fresh thinking in there. And with that, come up with either new dynamic solutions, or maybe we're going to dust some things off. There's been some great IP that's been sitting on some shelves for a little while. And maybe there's some solutions in there that people can go to work on, whether it's you know internal to the organization that developed that IP or licensing it to great teams that are really showing up. There's some amazing talent. And this could be private IP. This could be public IP, university IP. There's a number of different things that are really starting to pop in that space. And I think from that, we're going to see I hate to call it an energy renaissance, but I think that's kind of what we're looking at. It's it's not about replace and stop what we're doing. It's about improving what we're doing and coming up with a sort of augmenting solutions. And then as they prove, they'll probably gain market presence. And in that could be a number of solutions, whether it's all renewables, a blend, there might be some new things we haven't even seen yet. I think it's going to be pretty interesting. What are you most excited about? <sighs> I think right now, what I'm most excited about are efficiencies in transmission and or thinking about the distances that we're going to be transmitting the electrons. You know, we could be looking at local producing grids that are really producing for themselves pretty soon. We could be looking at, you know, continued long transmission, but some of that may be hugely improved by doing that, you know, really help in terms of efficiencies. I think some of that's really exciting. And then that, of course, spills into the battery space. And what is that going to do? You know, right now, there's sort of a conundrum around batteries, because the idea is that it's, you know, supposed to be saving the environment, but there seem to be, you know, several concerns that way that can be improved upon. But right now, we're not there yet. So I could go again, on and on and on. But I think it's really how are we getting <laughs> electricity to customers who need it. And that's, I mean, that's a, at this point, a human condition, right? We need electricity. If anything, as Houstonians, we know uniquely this year that that was a tough, tough series of days in February where without electricity in this modern age, what do we do? And, and, you know, it's not about pointing fingers. It's about let's solve stuff. Let's get stuff done. We can do this better. And that's not just wires and batteries. That's, a system-wide reboot, but then, you know, let's allow for some new entrants to come in there. And, you know, if, if people need a little help, this is the year 2021. And in the year 2021, it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to say, you know, we're doing okay, but we could do better. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, it's brought to light a lot of problems that we need to solve, right? And so, you know, it's exciting to see so many people try and step up to the plate to work on solving those problems because it's not easy, right? People really dedicate their entire life's work to solving some of these problems to ensure that, you know, energy needs of tomorrow are going to be met. And that is for sure something that, like you mentioned, 
organizations like Halliburton Labs and and other ones as well. I mean, they they really want to see that move forward. So they're dedicating resources and personnel to to helping companies develop that IP and move their ideas forward to potential viability, right? You know, create a minimum viable product and, and bring that to market, like you said, commercialization. As you know, since you've got experience, right, having gone through, you know, the startup, scale up, exit, acquisition phase, that is probably, and I was talking to somebody yesterday who, who had the same, you know, sort of experience and said that it was like a roller coaster going through it. It wasn't just this, you know, point A, point B, point C. It was, you know, up and down, left, right. You know, it was all the way. And you're shaking your head, so I'm assuming that you had a very similar experience. So could you speak to that experience a little bit? What was that like? And what were some of the things, looking back on it now, that really sort of are like pivotal moments in your mind? Sure. I mean, going through a startup cycle is not for the faint of heart. (laughs) It is difficult. But the thing is, it is also, it's thrilling. If you're a motivated doer, to be in the startup cycle might be the most exciting and best thing for you to be doing. It really, I think, boils down to risk tolerance. And, you know, we all have a certain amount of risk tolerance individually. And, you know, it's not for everybody. And that's okay. But there's legacies out there. I mean, look at the energy industry. Look at the oil and gas industry. Like, look a century ago. It was the same thing. So we actually, in Houston, if we can look into our roots and look back at that aspect of our history. There's a lot to pack up and bring with us right now. We need it. There's a lot of, you know, dusting things off and just getting the can-do back. Because, you know, right now it's easy. If, if you're, you know, a large entity and things are working well for you, you know, why do you want to change anything? You don't. Of course not. Why? It's hard. That's what the part of this transition is. And that's why, you know, we're seeing you know, friends, we're seeing colleagues, we're seeing, you know, people in our community and others who obviously don't want to change what they're doing because it's working really well for them. But the time is coming where it's certainly worth an assessment. I'm not going to say, you know, it's tomorrow because it's not, it isn't tomorrow. But if we get caught, you know, in the rain with no umbrella, like February, what are we going to do about that in the future? And we do have a lot of technologies that are either already pretty well developed or coming along or maybe just in the idea stage. There's some pretty funky stuff out there that, that, you know, I don't know if it's going to work, but it sounds great. And it's being worked on by a lot of smart people and people seem to be pumping some money into it. So, you know, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt until it proves that it does not indeed work. It's an iterative thing. We're people, we're humans. Iteration, I think, is is the key. But the thing is, of course, everybody wants it right now. You know, <laughs> it's our way for sure. Know. So, you know, having that experience, what would you advise a company to have in place as far as like foundation wise before scaling their business? Right, because I think there's some pivotal things, some key things, elements of a business that you want to have you know, nice and tight before you decide to, you know, turn on the jets. Absolutely. I think the first thing everybody should do is 
find their team, find their tribe, find the people that they can trust, know, and work with because doing it by yourself really isn't a good option. I know it's a thing that happens a lot, but if, you know, they may not always be your co-founders, but if you can find team, and I think a co-founding team is really important, I would start there. Second, then I would put that team, play to strengths, build out a, at least a base go-to-market strategy, an investor strategy, or, or how it is that you want to raise money. Maybe your company is better suited for grants or other, you know, numerous opportunities beyond traditional VC or private equity. And then there's the other way. If you have enough scratch, shoot, you know, keep it internal until you can't. And then if you get it far enough, get it into revenue enough, then you can go for traditional lending. And right now money's cheap. And so, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's the second thing I would do is really figure out that, you know, how do you want, what's going to pay for it after you can't afford it anymore and get that moving. The third thing I would do is, is figure out that go to market, really find those, you know, if you can get a paid beta or even an unpaid beta, but there's good value and it's short, prove out your model. If you have an MVP, put it to work. It may not be perfect yet. That's the iterative nature of things. It won't be perfect the first time, but if it can work and it can prove out the thesis behind your ideas, do it and share it. If there's a way to protect it, do that, you know, but check out IP. That's a fourth thing. If you're developing something, make sure somebody else hasn't already developed it or gone too close to it. And if they haven't file a you know, provisional, get some protection around it. And then after that incorporation, the tendency for a lot of small businesses and in, in across various areas is to immediately go for an LLC and it is cheap. You can do it. It's, it's easy, but you can't invest in an LLC. It isn't possible. So then you're going to end up having to pay more money to convert your corporate structure over to either a C corp or an S corp. And in the energy industry specifically, I would recommend if you're going to be raising investment of any sort, it may be that you go to the state of Delaware and file for a C corporation because that is the one that checks the box. It's the one that people are most familiar with. It is the one that has the best tax advantages for your potential investors. It's the thing that's going to check the most boxes. It's the one that people want. If you don't want that, okay, do something else, but know that that's literally tying your ankles together. (laughs) And if you're trying to do it as an LLC, well, then you have to incorporate every new partner in every single time. And that's not for stock. That's not how that works. And beyond that, then it, then it gets into build an advisory. You have a great team. Hopefully at this point, find some people outside of your team who can help you see what your team isn't seeing. And that's okay. You know, you want somebody to, you know, prove it out a little, uh, if you, if you have people that are in the industry that you're working in, or even, you know, specific SME that you can reach out to do it. It's hard though, to share ideas and people. That's why I say if you, if you can do it before IP. Great. Trust them. That's okay. 
but it's really important before you really get into revenue and scale. And that's where you're asking me to take these things. And if you're going to get into scale, you better have all these things all lined up where then it's all in a beautiful pitch deck for either your customers or your investors and, you know, light that candle, send it to the moon and then work really, really hard and expect at minimum an 85 hour week. And, <laughs> and that roller coaster <laughs> to play and you're going to think everything's great. And then it goes sideways and then it goes sideways again. And it's, that's <laughs> you touched on something there in the beginning, which was, you know, build your team, find your team, find your tribe. What are some things that you would advise companies to look for when, you know, hiring, vetting people for their team? What are some of the key elements that you would say, hey, make sure, try and check these boxes? I think it's very important for, you know, in an early stage startup, it's not that you need to know everyone and that's a tendency everybody leans toward, but if it's within your, let's say a, a one or two degree, two degree is probably preferred. Someone who has references that add up, they make sense. That's, I think the most important thing, because then that's going to get you the people that you need to have. Everybody thinks that you need to be a subject matter expert for a co-founder. And that's actually not true. What you need are people who get along that can work together toward a common goal and vision. So that's where it, it gets a little dicey though, because if everybody's the same, you end up in a silo and everybody's too different. You may end up nowhere. <laughs> so it's that compatibility is where, where I think is, is the most important thing. Obviously you want people that you know have some strength that com- contribute. So like, for instance, I would think a visionary and a technical co-founding team is probably the best start. If somebody's really good at that message and somebody's really good on their code and technology or whichever, you know, whatever applies, that's the best start. The things that I would bring on very quickly after though, is is somebody that's going to help you with, you know, that go to market. That's what I do. But then the other thing is get that financial thing sorted out. If you have a CEO who's really primarily fundraising and is your face person and you have that technology, you know, expert that's doing their thing got commercial that's sort of covering product. And then you have financial that's covering the bills, making sure that everything's balancing, getting that cap table under control, maintaining that control, which sometimes gets a little tricky in early stage startup. That's where I would start. And they may not be industry experts. They may not be, you know, it could, let's call this some kind of solar play, right? And probably you want somebody with some energy experience. Hopefully you have somebody else that has some you know, connections into some unfair advantage that's playing into your project and then get somebody who's commercialized something, anything has made it go to work, you know, has, has, has sold it, it's working and get that, that financial person and, and in an early team right now, we live in this age of fractional. And I, I know there's a zillion fractional CFOs that are out there who are good. And the thing is you don't need a CFO every day. You need a CFO I don't know what once you know, for two calls a week or, or something until it really starts turning. And then you might have them for half the week or, or whatever. And it may end up being a forever C- CFO. It may be a transition until you find that permanent person. Awesome. So what are some of the challenges that you have seen companies go through when scaling as far as like 
you know, maybe they scaled a little too fast, right? Or maybe they didn't have some of those key foundations in place. What are some of the what are some of the challenges that you've seen companies run into when scaling a little too fast? I call it rock band syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I usually see when things scale too fast is that you end up with, you know, that initial young team or those co-founders who haven't quite found their place in the team yet. And so then you end up with a divergence that can be very tricky. And that I see when things scale too fast. The other thing I see when things scale too fast is the ability to keep up with customer orders. If you don't have a really locked down chain, you know, (laughs) I mean, catastrophic. And I've definitely seen that where, you know, it's, yeah, I've got this awesome new client and let's say this is in the consumer package good space you know oh yeah we're doing it we're in x many stores we're on shelves we're making revenue we're doing great and then they 20 exit in you know a quarter and so there's no manufacturing there's no distribution and <laughs> you know, boom so you, you know make sure you nail it but then scale it appropriately that's that's the thing of course it's very shiny when somebody has you know a great contract but if you feasibly can't do it. I would highly recommend asking them if they can do a pilot or, or something that's going to allow you to take a, you know, maybe a two or three step approach to getting to that final order because they may be thinking they're helping you, but what they're doing is is actually clobbering you and not by design. I'm sure you've probably read a lot of books on the subject of, you know, startups, scale ups, the whole nine. For a founder or co-founders, what would you say are probably the the number one or, or top one or two books that you would recommend saying, look, if you run into any problems, these are really great references? Because I think each book, I mean, there's so many of them and there's a lot of them out there that each one of them offers maybe like one or two nuggets of really good advice. What are the two that you would recommend saying, you know what, if I was advising a company, I would definitely have the founder or co-founders maybe read this one or read these two or whatever it might be. You know, it's a variable answer to that question (laughs) because to nail down one or two books (laughs) is probably impossible for me to do. But the one that I almost always recommend, and it, it, it is Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point. I think the tipping point, yes, of course, it's not brand new, but the thing is it applies. It is so applicable for just about everyone. And, you know, like him or don't like him, his thinking and his logic is sound. It's weird. It's like somehow he's become this personality now, even though he wrote these books years and years ago. But I do believe that that book is very good. And then, I mean, to say a second book right now is probably impossible. But I will point out (laughs) is I probably am listening to more things that I'm reading right now. So if, you know, there's a target area that, you know, something even pretty specific and niche, there's pretty much a podcast for everyone. Right. And then if you really want to, you know, dig into YouTube or dig into, you know, wherever, you know, is your favorite channel, listen to them. And the thing is, some of it may be garbage. And that's also okay, because the thing is, it's allowing you to form your own opinion in, in your own place and, and, your, and 
verify or validate your own knowledge and understanding. And I have found myself sort of doing that a lot lately. And actually, I found a lot of good podcasts across a spectrum of pretty fascinating things. And and I've enjoyed listening to them. And so, you know, I know I'm totally plugging this whole thing, but it's true. I mean, that's where I have found myself connecting to, you know, whatever ideas are going around right now. And probably for the past couple of years, just probably the summer before COVID was when I got into podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, I think the one interesting thing about podcasts is that let's say if you have a book like Gladwell's book or anybody's book that, you know, there's probably a good likelihood that they've been on a podcast or have their own podcast. So you can go there and get these maybe up to date ideas or new insights or they have a lot of guests that you might not have ever heard of before that you know, maybe were contributors to their writing or they were people that they looked at and studied. And so I find that really fascinating as well. I've listened to some of Gladwell's podcasts. I've read a couple of his books. I think he's got a really interesting perspective for sure. And I mean, as someone who used to just live behind the wheel, you know, I would listen to a lot of audiobooks. And then there's like things, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Blinkist, which was or which is an app that basically is the cliff notes of all of, you know, like so many books, right? And they give you what they call blinks. And so you can listen to all these books, like here are the key takeaways, right? It's like the cliff notes, which I think was really insightful. And if there was one that I really, really liked, I would then go read the book. So it would give me just enough to pull me in, but I didn't have to commit a large amount of time to sitting down and then reading it and then thinking, do I want this book or not? I'd pay one price, get all these blinks, and then I could check them out as I need to, you know, but I think, you know, what people get out of these things is, you know, I think you definitely hit the nail on the head. Don't listen to it and take it as gospel. Use that to help formulate your own ideas. I know this guy who's a very successful businessman And one day we were at the Houston racetrack watching the simulcast of like Santa Anita races or something. And there's all these people around us that are, you know, they're pretty much there all the time. They're always, you know, they're always, they're quote unquote professional handicappers. And this gentleman, he's an older guy and, you know, he's really laid back and he's smoking a cigar and I was hanging out with him and we're having a couple drinks and watching the horses. And I said, Hey, you know, why don't you ever, you know, take these guys advice? You know, they, they seem to be here all the time. And he looks at me and goes, you know, I can pick my own losers. And I I just thought to myself, that is a man who knows exactly, he knows himself and knows that I don't necessarily have to listen to everybody. Yeah. Maybe they give me a tip or two, but you know, I'm going to do my own homework and you know, the likelihood of me really winning isn't that high, but you know, if I play long enough, I'll, you know, I'll I'll probably hit one or two and I'll have some experience. Right. And that has always sat with me, like, because he's obviously somebody that has been very successful in business. He ran a family owned business that's now a billion dollar business in the medical field. And I mean, to hear him say that really sort of set my perspective on, you know, Yeah, you know, you don't have to listen to what everybody else is telling you. You know, you need to formulate your own opinion. You know, just because something worked for someone doesn't mean it's going to work exactly that way for you. And, you know, that is something that has always stuck with me. And I realized, like, just because it worked for you doesn't mean it's going to work for me. And your way of doing something isn't necessarily going to be the right way for me to do it. 
maybe there's lessons to be learned and, and maybe pitfalls that you've overcome that I can learn from. And I think that's really important is to try and learn from other people's mistakes. But sometimes we just have to make mistakes in order to learn. Sometimes we really have to go through that process to figure out if we were going to be right or wrong, to prove our thesis or our hypothesis, right? Or to disprove it. So that's really interesting. James, I really appreciate you taking some time and, you know, talking with me and sharing these little nuggets of information and insights with the community. How can people in the audience connect with you? Where can they find you? What's the best way for them to get in contact if they want to, you know, maybe engage you for services or just insight? Sure. Well, probably the best place to reach me is, is old school email. It's james at villageinsights.com. And if, if you know, I, I do use social media. I'm on Twitter. My handle is jphalen713. And I'm on Facebook as James Phelan. And then there's good old LinkedIn, also James Phelan. Awesome. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I definitely want to have you back on in the future and we'll, you know, see where things have been and what's, what's new, what's happened. I'm sure there'll be lots of things to talk about, but I really appreciate it. And we'll catch up with you again on the next one. Okay. I appreciate it and look forward to the next time. Thanks. All right. Bye. Hey everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN and here are the events on deck for August, 2021. This month, we have five events, but if you'd like the full list, you can click the link in the show notes to sign up for our events newsletter. We send it out every month, and it includes more info about the events I talk about here. We even include events that occur two months ahead of time, so if you're interested in always staying in the loop about oil and gas events, make sure to check that out. This month, OGGN will be hosting our monthly happy hour at the Cannon in Houston, Texas on August 26th. Our July happy hour was a hit, so if you weren't there for the last one, we hope to see you there this month. At this event, you'll be able to meet some of OGGN's hosts, network with other oil and gas industry professionals, all while enjoying great food and drinks. Other than OGGN's events, we have three in-person events and one hybrid in-person and online event. First up, we have our three in-person events. The first being OTC, or the Offshore Technology Conference at NRG Stadium in Houston, Texas, from August 16th to the 19th. Next, we have the IPAA Leaders in Industry Luncheon at the Petroleum Club of Houston on August 17th. And lastly, we have the 2021 Connected Plant Conference at the Renaissance Hotel in Austin, Texas from August 30th to September 2nd. Other than our three in-person events, we have our hybrid event, which is NAEP, or the North American Prospect Expo. Now this summit is a hybrid event because it's both online and in-person. The in-person portion of the event will be from August 18th to the 20th at the George R. Brown Convention Center, while the online portion of the event is from August 9th to September 3rd. If you have any questions about these events or any podcasts within the Oil & Gas Global Network, make sure to reach out to me through my email in the show notes. That's all for August. I hope you guys have a great month, and thanks for tuning in. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGDN.com.